if you could choose three bands to show up at Blue Ridge Rock Fest, what would it be? Uh, answer to Unannounced, of course. Uh, so I really want to see. I want to see Des Rocks. That'd be cool. Added to like, you know, the, the, Small the smaller tier. tier because he puts on a hell of a show. Yeah. They're only a three piece, but they could, they could hang with the big boys. Yeah. Um, stepping it up a notch. I'm going to, you're all expecting me to say the struts. So I'm going to purposely count them out of this exercise because <laughs> you've already told, me in, to you told me in taxi. You want to see them show um, up. I really want to see, I'm blanking on every band I know right now. Some consulting Spotify. <laughs> Little Nas X is my most recent listen to. Um, we'll come back to the middle size. Big, I want to see them bring, they're not going to do it, but I want to see them bring Ozzy. Oh, I Because he canceled that. his last tour, so like, Oh, He's do a few love shows to see Ozzy. They can't pay that man enough money to come. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. Here we go. Middle, middle tier. Nita Strauss. I don't think I know Nita Strauss. She is the. She was a guitarist for Alice Cooper for a long time. Okay. She is insane on guitar. Nice. Um. So her. I mean, for me. Hmm. I think for small. I mean, they're not even really small in my opinion, but it would definitely be Spirit Box. I love Spirit Box so much. Cornelio Plant is just the next rock god. Have to be in this moment because I just hear they put on one hell of a show. And then I think my big, I'm going to cheat a little bit and do two who I want as big artists. I want Coheed and Cambria because they're so good live. I love them. I've been a fan of them for a long time. And then I want System of a Down. Because there are so many rumors that they're going to like do some reunion yeah. sh shows. And it was rumored they were going to do it last year too. And it didn't happen. So I would love to see them in concert. I think they're one of the most unique bands. I plan on maybe doing a mini episode about them sometime. But they're so unique. They're so different. What about one you have a good feeling about based on our stocking that you really want to see? Because mine's Bad Flower. I truly think... Well, I do think in this moment's going to play because they played before. I also think based off our stocking, I think Corn's going to play. They and could. they will get a big crowd. But that's that's who I think is going to play. I don't know what I was going to say. And Pretty Reckless is going to play. Pretty Reckless is going to play. I, I can almost confirm with you they're going to play. They're due to stay on from the bill. I also yeah. really hope that Red Jumpsuit Apparatus comes back. Yeah. Okay. Supposedly they're staying too. I hope they stay. I don't think the lineup's changed at all, to be honest with you. I don't remember what the lineup was last year. So. I think they like secured them. So good to know. Well, they did add an extra day, so they got to come up with some extra people somewhere. Well, that's why they added 180. <laughs> <laughs> Their marketing team was like, "Wait, it still says 120 from last year. We added an extra day. Oh, yeah, add another, another 60 add people. Another 60. Let's go. Uh, How many stages are they having? Is it like six? It's six. Oh, I have the Holy tab. Shit, I have the lineup tab pinned now to refresh every day. We gonna have to like get our like gym shoes. Well, so I had the thought the other day, I was like, I should bring my hydration pack that I wear when I'm running. And it's if you not read, a bad idea. If you read the FAQs, you're only allowed one clear plastic bottle of water. Yeah, that sounds right. I well, was that like, could count. It's, it's a giant green clear plastic bottle of water <laughs> with a straw in it and lots of pockets for snacks. It's the main reason I wanted it. Mm -mm, like get ready to pay for $6 
bottled water. I know. Well, I think they allow like one cooler or something like that. Well, that's my cooler. I, I got to go look it up and see what our crew's doing. Anyway. I'm Beth Ann. And I'm Leah. And this is She Will Rock You. Where are they getting a dub in a CBS executive meeting? No. Bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, hold up, before I haul you, let me turn down the thermostat. This is bad. We're on page one, guys. This is She Will Rock You. Um, no business to attend to, do we? I feel like we're starting a committee meeting when you say that. <laughs> That's what I feel like I'm leading a board meeting when I do that. Um, oh, I think I, I, I can't think of anything, yeah, though. I can just jump right into my episode. Jump on in. Which, I don't know about anybody else out there. Did you go through the middle school phase where you were obsessed with the Carpenters? Because I did. At Christmas time, yes. But there was a good solid like seventh grade year where I was obsessed with the Carpenters. I didn't know anything about them. I just really liked their music. So that's who we're talking about today. Before I go any further, I will throw out that there's a trigger warning throughout this whole episode for anorexia and eating disorders and ultimately death. So if you're bothered by any of those things, um, this is your warning. Maybe skip this one because... We can't tell the story of Karen Carpenter without these things, sadly. So let us set the scene. New Haven, Connecticut, October 15th, 1946. Richard Lynn Carpenter is born to parents Harold and Agnes. Can you think of a more 1946 family name? I love that. Harold and Agnes have baby Richard. Four years later, on March 2nd, 1950, Karen Ann joins and makes them a family of four. Aww. Richard was a really quiet kid who spent most of his time at home listening to Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff. This is the most wide-ass Connecticut family I've ever heard, but continue. (laughs) And playing the piano. Oh, okay. You know, just sprinkle that on. Uh, Karen, meanwhile, was friendly and outgoing, like the complete total opposite of Richard. She liked to play sports, playing with the neighborhood kids. But she still spent a lot of time listening to music. Um, that was actually, they were really, really close siblings, despite four year, a four-year gap between the two of them, and very early on bonded over their love of music. Uh, even before he could read, Richard would sit on the floor of his parents' living room and go through the records and pick out his favorites and listen to them. And he could tell the difference in the difference records by feeling the grooves. He memorized which ones were his favorite. What? Yeah, I don't know how you do that, but apparently he did. I have, yeah, I don't have a clue. Because I mean, a lot of these like generic like composery ones probably had the same cover. They're probably part of a series. So he learned to tell the difference between the ones he wanted to listen to by feel. That's some gifted kid shit. He's definitely a gifted kid. Um, where was I? So he started piano lessons when he was eight, but he didn't really like. Like every kid who gets on this, like we talk about, he didn't like the structured formal lessons. Uh And so he quit after a year and just started teaching himself how to play by ear. And eventually he did resume studying with a different teacher who let him have a little bit more free reign. Right. At age 14, he decided he wanted to like strive to having a career playing professionally. So he started taking lessons at Yale School of Music. Casually. Gifted kid. Which goes to show if you don't like your teacher, find a new one if they don't fit your learning style. That's that's very, especially with kids who just have it naturally by yeah. ear, you have to put them with the right teacher because if you just have someone who forces you by the book, 
No, nah, they're not going to enjoy it. You are not going to learn. Yeah. Um, so in June 1963, the Carpenter family moved from Connecticut to Los Angeles in the suburb of Downey, pretty much because a Harold, their dad hated the snow was fair. Um, but also they moved, made the move to LA because they wanted better musical opportunities for Richard. That's fair. If you don't get the hint early on, Richard is the favorite child. Keep that in your mind. They're also by New York. I don't. You got it's a still little cold snow. in New York. I mean, I understand like the most common story of why us northerners move down to the south to pillage your cheap prices <laughs> is because it's no snow, but you still have New York, which arguably is just as musically inclined. But anyway, they wanted to move somewhere warm. All right. And so once he moved there, he became known as like the smart piano kid. Yeah. And he was often asked to be the organist for weddings and services at his local Methodist church. But instead of playing the traditional hymns, he would take Beatles songs and rearrange them on the fly ah! into a church style. Ah! Oh, where's that church? Where's St. Paul's? Point me in the direction of St. Paul, St. John, St. Ringo, Which I think St. George. Hilarious. Because no one noticed because they weren't listening to the Beatles. I mean, if you listen to Let It Be, you can make that sound like Amazing Grace very easily. <laughs> so props to Richard for rebelling. I love that. In 1964, he started college at Cal State Long Beach and Karen started high school where she found that she had a natural talent for playing drums. Ooh. She originally wanted to start playing the glockenspiel. Excuse me? Yes, that was... She literally came into high, high school saying, I want to play the glockenspiel. And what is that? I don't fucking know. It, I think it's like a a xylophone type thing. Hold on, let me look it up. It is a xylophone looking thing. Okay. So it's like a baby xylophone. Okay. Um, Her friend at the time was a really gifted glockenspiel player. Holy shit. And he was basically like, Karen, you suck at this. Please go try another instrument. And so she tried He just to didn't want the competition. <laughs> Probably. There can only be one Glockenspiel <laughs> player in L.A. Probably. Um, but props to her because, A, she has a natural talent. Like, she just gets it. Yeah. But she hated gym class and doing any kind of exercise by high school and somehow wormed her way into getting marching band to count for her physical education Oh, that's credit. smart. I wish I thought, would have thought about that. She also got uh, school choir to substitute her geometry credit. Okay. That one, I don't know how you get that where was this option when i was in school oh <laughs> all my studies would have been music related at that point although i did get uh not to take a math my senior year and was instead of ta so that's nice i did luck out um her she had a like a habit of getting interested in things and then not really sticking with them yeah. so for her first year ish her parents were like we are not buying your drum kit because that's expensive and we don't know if you're gonna stick with it mm -hmm. so she makes her own in the kitchen out of pots and pans and the bar stools <laughs> <laughs> she had like a multi-tier pots and pans you gotta thing do going. it she really quickly became the drummer for an all-girl band called two plus two Ew. not a good name the other girls in the band were like, we really need to add Richard. Like, let's add Richard to our band. We like Richard. And Karen was like, no, this is an only girls band. That's we're not right. bringing my brother in. That's right. But they didn't last very long. Two plus two didn't. Richard and Karen had never performed publicly together, despite having like separate musical interests until in 1965, 
Somehow, the two of them end up being the entire pit for a production of Guys and Dolls. What? It was a drum set and a piano. Did they not have any orchestra people in Los Angeles? <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> I don't understand that. You're breaking my brain. I don't either. Like, Wisconsin, if you had told me that, yeah, okay. No. Los Angeles? No. Weird. <laughs> so, uh, don't tell me that high school theaters need defunding. Uh, you can say that again. Uh, also in 1965, Karen and Richard, along with their friend and future songwriting partner, Wesley Jacobs, formed a jazz trio, which they creatively called the Richard Carpenter Trio. Ew. I hate, hate that. I hate jazz names when it's just like trio this, It's trio so that. pretentious. Yeah. So pretentious. So Richard buys a tape recorder and begins to just make recordings of the group as they're playing around and improvising and whatnot. And originally no one sang. Uh, occasionally they'd invite some other friends to fill in some lead vocals, but mm -hmm. neither of them was interested in being the lead singer. In early 1966, Karen tagged along to a late night session in someone's garage studio. And his name was Joe Osborne. Joe was like, Karen, you just, just sing for me. Like, we're just here messing mm -hmm. around. Just sing for me. And he was like, holy shit. You're a really good singer. She's a good singer. And so he signed Karen and Richard to well, sign Karen to his his label in his garage called Magic Lamp Records. And he signed Richard to his publishing side of this tiny label called Light Up Music. And while they were with that label, they put out a single featuring two of Richard's compositions, Looking for Love and I'll Be Yours. The tracks were all backed by the Richard Carpenter Trio. Uh, they did not do well, as you can imagine. Usually garage band records don't do that well. No. Uh, obviously, it's a garage setup. Homeboy doesn't have any money to promote the label or the record. Yep. So it the, the whole label just folds the next year. <laughs> uh, yeah. Are we surprised? No. No. Uh, so in 1966, the Richard Carpenter Trio enters the Hollywood Bowl annual Battle of the Bands, which okay. is a very L.A. thing. Uh, and they won, which got no. them signed to RCA Records. Hey. And so what do they do? Two covers. They do a cover of the Beatles, Every Little Thing, and Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. A committee at the record label reviewed their recordings, said these aren't good enough, and let them go. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what you get for doing a cover. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do a cover, you better damn do a cover. Yeah. None of this half jazz shit. Yeah, no. I don't know what they did, but obviously they've been kicked from two labels. So Karen graduates from high school in 1967, where she was given the John Philip Sousa Band Award for her achievements on the drums. Good for her. And not the glockenspiel. In the fall, she joins Richard at Long Beach State, where she majored in music, and... This is when Karen starts to really become conscious of her appearance. So uh, she was always kind of a, a chubbier kid and her friends were just really shitty friends and told her this all the time. Like they made it a big oh, deal because it's the 60s and, you know, things were different, but her friends are still shitty. Yeah. And so uh, keep in mind, just for the remainder of the story, the Karen's 5'4". So she's short, like mm -hmm. she's tiny uh, and her mother her mother is adding to this problem because she's constantly saying like, if you're going to be performing, you need to lose the baby weight. Oh yeah. That's terrible. And so 
when she starts her career, she's 154 pounds at 5'4", which... That's not bad. It's pretty normal. That's normal weight. It's pretty normal. So her mom was like, we're going to help you lose this weight. So she takes her to a doctor who introduces her to the Stillman water diet. Oh, God. Which is literally just cutting out carbs and fatty foods and drinking eight glasses of water a day. We could literally start a podcast about why you need carbs yes. in your life like it is very important yes in the 60s no one's but eating carbs you do not just cut war carbs and drink water please literally drink water yes she's just pretty much eating chicken breasts and drinking eight glasses of water oh god and she hates water which i think is a funny note that someone pointed out in this book she hates water but she did it and she would be miserable like the other band members would be like we're done recording let's go eat a burger and she's like Double standards. Um, but she ends up losing 25 pounds in just six weeks. Oh, that's not healthy. Which is super dangerous uh, and brings her down to 115. Oh, that's not healthy And that got her, her mom's like approval and started this very long downward spiral into an eating disorder that would ultimately kill her. Oh, God. But we'll come back to that part later. So she joins Richard at college and very quickly the two of them leave because as Karen put it, what good was biology going to do them with their music career? Fair. Yeah. Fair. So they drop out of college and their buddy from earlier with his garage studio still has his stuff, I guess. So he's like, you know what? I still have my stuff. You can record demo tapes here if you want. And they're like, cool. Just don't Mm -hmm. try to sign us again because (laughs) that did not work. And they basically had unlimited studio time. And so Richard decides to experiment with overdubbing his and Karen's voices over each other to create this large choral sound, which is super cool. And also at this time, um, Karen's like 19 at this point. And she finally starts to like realize the potential of her singing voice. Uh-huh. She, she's never going to have like she learned she's never going to have this like, big commanding voice that a lot of lead singers have. But she could get a lot out of her voice by closely milking it with a microphone and putting in a lot of vibrato mm-hmm. and just like relying on the emotion. She actually, her parents wanted her to take voice lessons because they're like, if you're going to do this, yeah. let's do this right. And she went to a few, but her voice teacher was like, I don't know. Karen has a naturally like arty and pop voice. I don't want to mess it up and like yeah. train her classically when that's not what she's going to be singing. That's absolutely true. And her parents are like, hell yeah, we can save money and stopped (laughs) doing that. Um, So in 1967, Wesley Jacobs, who was their friend and other member of the trio, ends up leaving the band to move and go play in the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which okay, good for him. So Richard and John Bettis, who is important because he's another songwriting partner of Richard's, They need money, so they get hired as musicians at the refreshment shop in Disneyland. Ooh. On Main Street. And if if you've never been to Disneyland or Disney World, Main Street's very early century, like 1910s. It's set up to be like small town Marceline, Missouri. Um, And so their job is to play this piano with turn of the century songs, like ragtime stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Richard had other ideas because... If you at Disneyland, cast members are supposed to be like, I don't know that song. That's a modern song. I only know songs from 1915. And he would give in to the guests request to play like the Beatles and stuff like that. 
And ultimately, the two of them got fired. Yeah, I'm sure Disney <laughs> didn't like that. Especially 1960s Disney did not like that. No, this is very new Disney. Well, Disney is still there. Oh, he's he head honcho still. You are not getting away with modern songs. Don't let piss me, off. Uh, let me Disney. tell you about that man. So they get fired by their supervisor, whose name is Victor Guter. And they end up writing a song about it later. We'll come back to that. Um, but they, they weren't happy to be let go. As you can imagine. Great experience, though. So then Richard and Karen find some other student musicians on campus from the college they just dropped out of and form a band called Spectrum. As you can imagine, this also does not last long. Yeah. They record some demos. They pass them around. No one wants to pick them up. And part of the problem was it's the West Coast in the 60s. Everyone wants to play psychedelic rock. Yeah. And Spectrum has a very middle of the road sound. Like they're not over here in pop land. Mm-hmm. They're not over here in rock either. So like they're just kind of there yeah. and no one really wanted it. So the next year that fell apart um, because their music was not danceable. Yeah. And they had to find something else to do. And so Richard starts thinking back onto those experiments that he'd had in Osborne's studio where, you know, they're layering his and Karen's voices together and they go together great. And so they're like, fine, we're a duo now called the Carpenters. And so they end up having to look for another record label because they've been dropped twice already. Mm -hmm. And they go on a television program called Your All-American College Show, which is a terrible name for a TV show. And they go on to a cover of Martha and the Vandellas dancing in the street and they win, which the way that this is set up is kind of like America's Got Talent where it's a bunch of like mini weeks and then all the winners the previous weeks go and perform at the end for a big winner. They didn't win the big round, but they did win their week. But at the same time, Karen's like, I don't know what where we're going with this. So she actually auditions to be a vocalist in Kenny Rogers band. Oh, really? <laughs> but th- that doesn't pan out. And at the same time, those two things are happening. The two were asked to audition for a Ford Motor Company ad, which they got. And the, the, it was going to pay them $50,000 each and give them each a new car. Excuse me? But... At the same same time of all this, they get an offer from A&M and in order to take the record offer, they can't take the Ford deal. So they pass on the Ford deal and get the A&M record deal, which they did choose right. Because yeah. Why are they getting $50,000 for a commercial? Though? I don't know. And a car. I, I don't see that happening even today. That's a sweet deal for writing an ad campaign. Yeah. I don't know. Advertising in the 60s is wild. We'll they com- just throw money. They just have money to throw around. Yeah, they do. We don't have money to throw around. It's because they were putting cocaine things. in their beverages. Yeah. Um, so they get signed to a But because... Okay, so at this point in 1969, Karen is just 19. And because she's underage, her parents have to co-sign on this record deal for her. <laughs> they actually signed the contract as Carpenters with Jout without the the because they were inspired by buffalo springfield and jefferson airplane Uh, which they thought were cool but they ended up pretty much using the carpenters for everything 
Uh, the best thing about A&M Records that could have ever, I guess, happened to them is A&M had this policy of not micromanaging their artists and giving them free reign in the studio. That's nice. No matter if it was a brand new artist who didn't know what they were doing. Like, they just said, you know, we signed you for a reason. Go do it. Yeah. And they kind of lucked out because they had just been in a band for a couple years. It wasn't go anywhere. So they took all of Spectrum's material that Richard had written. Yeah. He rearranged it inspired by Beatles Ticket to Ride or he rearranged the Beatles Ticket to Ride into his new ballad style which I didn't put this in here and I meant to put it in here in here Richard Carter is the carpenter Richard Carpenter is the pioneer of the power ballad like mm-hmm. power ballads didn't exist and we're not quite to the 80s level power ballads yet yeah but this is definitely a stepping stone to get there and Richard as you'll see he rearranges a lot of things like you said in the Janis Joplin episode this is a time where everyone's just stealing each other's songs and yeah. covering each other and he does that and always adds a unique twist on it because mm-hmm. he very quickly learns his and Karen's style and what they need to be singing and they're not trying to just straight up cover the Beatles like yeah they're gonna change it a little bit um so they they pretty quickly throw together an album which they called Offering drops in October 1969 and it has really great reviews. Uh, one, That's rare for a debut album. Yeah. One review on Billboard said with radio programming support, the Carpenters will have a big hit on their hands, but it wasn't a commercial success hmm. because no one knew who they were yet. That's so it's interesting because like I'm thinking back to Janice and one thing I didn't bring up in that episode was big brother's first album cheap thrills did great commercially but not good huh like it was mixed reviews and it always seems that way it's either you're gonna get your first album mixed reviews really good distribution or shitty distribution and great reviews yeah they've they pretty much with the exception of one album have great reviews all around um we'll talk about that more at the end so a&m did not drop them because they're not shitty like the other two labels and said you know let's maybe focus on recording a hit single instead so that people can learn about you and you, you know, get some exposure. So that December they met with, uh, who would ultimately become six time Grammy winner for songwriting, Burt Bacharach. Okay. Who he really was impressed by the Carpenter's work. He heard some of their stuff and he wanted them to open for him at a charity concert, which would include, the Carpenter is performing a medley of his songs that he wrote, which is cool. And so their manager, the Carpenter's manager, asked Richard to rework a song, They Long to Be Close to You, which he had just written for Dion Warwick a year prior. And Richard Carpenter was like, I can rearrange this. Let's make this work. This will be our standalone piece. It'll be a great single. And he wrote an entire new arrangement from scratch because the dude is a musical genius. Mm-hmm. And because he wanted to stand out from other early recordings, he didn't want it to copy the Dionne Warwick version. It's pretty much just the lyrics that he stole. Um, but anyway, it was released as a single in my, March 1970, and it reached number one on July 25th and stayed there for four weeks. So they did it. Nice. They're like first crack at a hit single. Yeah. They did it. Their next hit go, goes back to the television commercials being fucking insane at the time. Mm-hmm. The story behind We've Only Just Begun, Crocker National Bank gets in their head that they want 
these TV commercials. So they hire this ad guy. I don't know his name. He's not important to write a jingle for two 30 second spots. And so like, they don't really come up with a jingle, but they're kind of catchy. And they're like these emotional ads about, Oh, you just got married. You should open a bank account. Yeah. Um, but they just came up with these two 30 second snippets for the commercials. And the executives at Crocker bank were like, man, we really like these, the song you came up with for the ads, but like, they don't, they don't work together. Can we yeah. like finish this song so it, it works? And so they ended up handing out some unfinished, unfinished versions to their employees. And somehow Richard got his hands on some of them and finished the song for them. And so he wrote, we've only just begun. That's weird. That's crazy. Two commercial snippets, which is, I don't understand that method of advertising at all, but yeah. Whatever. So three months after Close to You reached number one, the Carpenters version of We've Only Just Begun hit number two, becoming their first of eventual five number two hits. They never really <laughs> are able to get up to number one oh, because like at this point when We've Only Just Begun drops, it's competing against I'll Be There by the Jackson Five. Yeah. And I Think I Love You by the Partridge Family. You know, it's just on. It's just an honor to be on the list. Yeah. Just just happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, both of those, Close to You and We've Only Just Begun, became certified gold. They wound up going on the album Close to You. Mm-hmm. You know, great title Weird for an album. two siblings, but okay. Uh, we'll get there. Which placed number oh, God. 175 <laughs> on the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time by Rolling Stone. That album also includes a song that Richard wrote about his manager at Disneyland who fired him. And the song's called Mr. Gooder. Um, I just love the name of Gooder. He regrets writing it later. Mr. Gooder, I don't I didn't put this in here, but in the book I read, he thinks it's hilarious. Like he, oh, good. he had no ill will towards Richard. I mean, Richard was just not following the rules. He did what he had to do yeah. to get rid of him. But at, there's one story where he went out to dinner somewhere in LA and the waitress realized who it was and so they played the song when he sat down oh my god <laughs> and he th- said it was the best meal ever because he got all the attention in the, yeah. the restaurant good for him that's I, funny yeah props to him for being a good sport about it yeah so they finished this year of 1969 i think that's what we were on uh with their release of merry christmas darling i love that song which they had been playing with other other bands for several years um it's one of the most famous original Christmas songs, I think. Yes. Um, and they do a lot of Christmas stuff. I don't even put it in here, but they do. Oh, I love a good Carpenter Christmas. They do a Christmas album later. They do some TV specials. They're all about Christmas. So then we hit the early 1970s and things are booming for the Carpenters. They're making it big. Their song for all we know is used in a movie called lovers and other strangers. It's also a cover of another song that Richard <laughs> stole from someone, but he reworked it and re-recorded it and it became their third gold single and earned them an Oscar for best original song. And they were up against, I meant to write it down, some big name artists at this. I think the Who was on the like oh, competition. Wow. So they really, really beat big people at the art, at the artists. God, at the Oscars. <sighs> So then very soon after that, Rainy Days and Mondays became their fourth big hit and fourth gold single. And I keep giving credit to Richard because he's doing most of the songwriting, but they're also working with their friends, Paul Williams and Roger Nichols to write a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, specifically in the song Rainy Days and Mondays, the opening line, talking to myself and feeling old, was inspired by Paul Williams' mother because it's something she said all the time and he wanted to give a little tribute Aww. to her, which I think is cute. That's cute. Superstar was their next big hit, and the song had originally appeared on Joe Cocker's 1970 album, oh. Mad Dogs and Englishmen, but it was sung by Rita Coolidge. Karen was familiar with the album, and this is how much people are stealing each other's songs. So in 1970, it's on Joe Cocker's album. Mm-hmm. Like 1971, Bette Midler's covering it on The Tonight Show, and like 1972, The Carpenters are covering Jeez. it. <laughs> But I will say, if Bette Midler covers one of your songs... You're doing it right. You're doing it correctly. Um, Because they are siblings and because they wanted radio play, they changed the line from the original of I can hardly wait to sleep with you again to be with you again because they knew that the first one wasn't going to get played on the radio, but also because they're siblings and that's fucking weird. I also don't... I kind of feel weird about songs about closeness and your sibling being there. Well, there were, I don't, I didn't put a specific section about it. There were lots of rumors. I'm sure there were. The press was very weird about it. Like they made it weird when it shouldn't have been weird. They'd be like, we need a photo of you hugging. And they're like, no. Or do you guys, you guys do everything together or hold hands. That was another big one. They'd be like, you guys should hold hands. And they're like, no. So, but like with heart, you know lesbians yes lesbians they're lesbian sisters yeah because you know saying sleep with you just isn't going to cut it on 1970s airwaves no no it will not on may 14th 1971 the carpenters perform a sellout show at carnegie hall on the same day they released their third album which is their most famous album called carpenters Mm -hmm. and can you imagine being at that launch party oh it must have been wild. I bet it was fantastic. Um, but while things are going really good for them, also in 1971, Karen's worst nightmare comes true. And they make her move out from behind the drum kit and to be center stage. This Ooh. whole time, she's been doing lead vocals from behind the drum kit. I didn't kit. know that. Yeah. I didn't know that she was as good of a drummer as she was. Like She's a little Aaron Gillespie. She could have very well not done the lead vocals for the band. Yeah. And been a drumming like legacy but they when you have what six people up on stage and no focal point the audience was starting to get really confused and they weren't like staying engaged with their shows it's hard when you have a drummer singer yeah yeah like because you're used to seeing the person in the front yeah and you need something to, to stare at and to like command a crowd yeah and she really, really wanted to be the lead vocalist. That's all she'd really like worked towards becoming. But she did, wasn't confident in herself and in her body and in her yeah. like and her persona to command a crowd. And so she like begged her brother and management to just keep playing behind the drum kit. And they're like, "No, we can hire a million other drummers. Like you have to be out front and you have to be on stage." And so this really doesn't help her body issues because now yeah. she's in front of everyone to see and she can't hide behind her, her symbols anymore. Ugh, poor thing. Um, so they dropped the album Carpenters. And when this album drops, they hire Craig Braun and Associates, which is a graphic design firm, to design the cover, which has the iconic The Carpenters mm-hmm. logo on it. Yeah. And Richard says as soon as he saw it, he was like, that's our logo. We're going to use that. 
We're going to always keep things consistent, which I appreciate a good brand consistency. I love cohesiveness so much. You know, some bands are like, let's not make anything match. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Um, they're not sleeping apparently because also in 1971, they started to record a short TV series called Make Your Own Kind of Music, which didn't go over super great. It had lots of mixed reviews. They were very random, these shows. They, the main criticism was that they didn't have like a theme or a focal point. And so it didn't, it didn't last very long. Later that year, Richard is watching a Bing Crosby movie called Rhythm on the River. And in this movie, Bing plays a country singer whose career was in decline and whose most famous song was called Goodbye to Love. But the song never makes an appearance in the film. It's just like mentioned. Yeah. And so one night, Richard's just like, what would this song sound like? <laughs> and so he writes it. I love that. And he he wants to branch out a little bit and add a fuzzy guitar to like the, the instrumental breaks, but they have a really hard time finding a guitarist willing to work with them because they weren't considered a rock band. Right. They were considered a pop band, which they're not rock really. They're pop rock. They're, they they they're really are pop a rock. pop rock. Yeah. But there wasn't a genre for that yet. So everyone's like, I don't know where to put them. Yeah. And so they eventually did find someone. He was amazing and he ended up going on tour with them. Um, but when they released it, it got... Uh, it's one of my favorite Carpenter songs, but it got really mixed reviews because their fans were like, what? This isn't the way that the Carpenters normally sound. And all these people who have been like knocking on them for so long were like, hey, I like that guitar. Maybe I'll give you guys a chance. Mm-hmm. And so they really started to bridge the gap between rock and pop and won a bunch of fans uh, on both sides of the gap. So Goodbye to Love was on their fourth album, A Song for You, which came out in 1972. That also includes another great Carpenter song, Top of the World, which was originally just supposed to be an album filler. Mm-hmm. They had no intention of releasing it as a single, um, but something changed their minds last minute and Richard was like, I guess we can try it. And it wound up hitting number one. It's one of their oh. few hits to actually hit number one. Their next album in, I think, 1973-ish, I didn't put a date, was named by their mother, Agnes, and contains Sesame Street's signature song, Sing. Aww. I always forget that they're, they're the ones who sang that. And the, it features a, the Jimmy Joyce Children's Choir, which when they did this on tour, they would always find a local children's choir to come join them on the That's stage. That's so sweet. When they sang it. I love that. So let's pause here for a second to talk about the family dynamics and the Carpenter family. So we're now approaching like the, the early 20s of Karen around here. So Harold and Karen are both like sweethearts. They just, they love everyone. They want everyone to get along. They just want peace Mm -hmm. and harmony. But Agnes and Richard are, as the book I read put it, bitchy. Mm. Agnes loves Richard and she dotes on him. She always puts him first. Uh, One of their childhood friends that was interviewed said from the time that Karen was little, everything was Richard, Richard, Richard. Mm. It was always Richard and Karen. And if it wasn't for Richard, there wouldn't be a Karen. He was more important to Agnes than Karen was. And so it was Agnes had this like inability to show any kind of love or nurture to Karen. And this kind of really hurt Karen's own ability to love herself. I'm sure. Her mom literally could not say I love you. Like 
people would ask her like you should maybe tell karen that you love her and she's like well i'm from the north we don't do it that way oh paulie i'm from the north (laughs) and my mom said i love you i think (laughs) (laughs) no she did she did so something was very strange in these the, the relationship and it only got worse as they got more famous and more in the limelight. She never would tell Agnes or Agnes would never tell Karen that she was proud of her. She would always criticize her appearance. Oh God. Um, it left Karen feeling like she had no control over anything in her life because she's being pulled from, you know, one famous people thing to another. Yeah. No alone time. And so when Karen was 24 and Richard was 28, they decide it's time to move out. They get an apartment together, you know, like grown ass adults do. Wait, they weren't, they were still living with their parents? They were still living with their parents. While they're in a success? Yes. Okay. I can't find a whole lot of information on their parents. There was, there were some very strange parenting tactics happening. There was a very unhealthy relationship with these parents. Yeah, I was about to say, there's a lot of control that seems to be happening. A lot of control. I mean, up until Karen died, her parents were controlling of a lot of her life oh god um so they're 24 and 28 they get an apartment together because they're like we're never gonna be here anyway yeah let's just split an apartment and they don't want to upset their mother so they literally get a family friend to tell their mother that they're moving out of the house oh that's golden and she does not take it well i bet she does not and this friend she got interviewed and she was like you know the two of them are very mature when it came to like stage presence and professional meetings but as Mm -hmm. far as like interpersonal relationships and with their parents they were very immature they basically acted like teenagers with their parents like it was just very strange that's weird and around this time they play a show at lake tahoe and karen sees some photos from it and she doesn't like the way she looks she thinks she's looking chubby again but this time she kind of does a sensible thing and hires a personal trainer to like work out and lose the weight but she quickly starts to bulk up with muscle which she doesn't like because in the 70s it's not a look you gotta be twig thin twiggy is like the international superstar at this point right and that's the way you look or not like that's the that's not the look muscle muscular girls are not a look and then it gets worse because they go on the bob hope show and she and Richard are getting ready and she just makes a point of like, I've gained some extra weight. Like this is this outfit's not fitting right. And he just goes, yeah, you have. <gasps> what a piece of shit. Men do not agree with women when they say this. Okay. Just say you look great and yes. deflect the question. Uh, yeah. They look great regardless. Yes. Like, Jeez. don't, don't say, yeah, you have. And so she vows to do something about it. And this is when she really looking her family said looking back this is when she really starts to exhibit anorexic behaviors um well whose damn fault is that her family's correct uh she would do things like order food at a restaurant to make look like she was eating and then say oh this is really good you should have a bite and you should have a bite and basically give away her entire plate oh that poor baby and so it looked like she was eating um oh i feel for her and like i said it, this is also a control issue because she felt like she had no control of everything in her, anything in her life. Um, Richard's steadily going through girlfriends like really quickly, mm-hmm. but Karen's having a really hard time even finding people to date, much less be in a serious relationship with. Mm-hmm. And she just really wants to settle down and have a family. It's all she wants. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that in a yeah. second. 
So they finally decide that they need to take a break because they hit real hard for like five years straight. Mm-hmm. And they did not record a new album in 1974. They were exhausted. Richard said, there was simply no time to make one, nor was I in the mood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and things kind of get tense between Richard and Karen for a little bit because Richard starts to date the group's hairdresser, who is kind of Karen's best friend. And Karen's like, we can't ruin this. Yeah. She's my friend. She's been on tour with us for a long time. Like, don't let your personal feelings get in the way. Right. Um, and Agnes hated the hairdresser girlfriend. And so not surprised. Agnes ultimately caused the two of them to broke up and the hairdresser quit. Thanks, Agnes. Jeez. So instead of a new album, they make their first greatest hits package, which they kind of they don't do a straight like cut and paste. They at least do some remixes of the singles mm-hmm. and they record. I think this is cool. They record new leads and bridges that lets the whole album play through without any breaks. Oh, so there's no pause between any of this. I love, I love albums like that, which I think is genius. It's a way to spice up your greatest hits album. Yeah. And over the next couple of years, they release a few more albums, but I'm not going to go into that because I'm not going to record another 90 minute episode and they're not groundbreaking at all. Yeah. So fast forward to 1979 where Richard gets checked into rehab because where did that come from? Yeah. So for the Pat, it comes to light several years ago, like five, six, seven years ago when they started touring, Richard would have a really hard time sleeping on the road. So his mom gives him Qualudes, which she was prescribed. She gave him his prescri- her prescription medicine. And she so, is not a good mom. No, she's I'm not. sorry. I don't like to judge people's parenting, but you cannot tell one kid I don't like you and you can't give another kid sleeping pills. I'm sorry. You do not win parent of the year. No. So now she, they have Richard with a serious addiction. I mean, he's taking like seven or eight at a time just to fall asleep and to be able to relax because he definitely has anxiety. And you've got Karen who's in full blown anorexia and no one's paying attention to her. Um, so they take a hiatus. He goes to Topeka, Kansas to be checked into an inpatient facility, which is how you're supposed to be treated for addiction. Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind. Um, and Karen just tells everyone she has colitis and that's why she doesn't eat and why she's lost a lot of weight. Mm. So, and around this time, uh, she actually collapses both from the exhaustion of being on tour for years and the stress that this life is putting on her. Uh, she stayed with her parents for a little while while Richard was in rehab and would sleep for like 16 hours straight because she was just so she has no energy tired from working Um, she's getting super thin rumors about her having cancer start to spread to the point where her fan clubs are writing her and being like I hope you're not dying yeah and she's just like no I'm, I'm fine like I don't have cancer I'm just really tired from being on tour it's fine um so rather than seeking professional medical help, she decides to make a solo album during her downtime. Okay, with, that with doesn't no stress. help, but okay. Yep. And her mother did not like her working without Richard. And so she convinced the record label to scrap. Are you kidding me? The album. I do not like this woman. I do not like her at all. That's the simple version of it, but that's pretty much what happened. Um, There were a lot of rewrites and re-records because Karen herself... what record company listens to the mother? Well, her... She co-signed for... 
her 19 year old daughter so oh, i forgot about that legally i think agnes is part of this contract even though now karen is a 27 year old woman or 28 year old woman that is bullshit um so it actually was finally issued in 1996 13 years after karen died they yeah. still kept all the recordings and unfinished songs so props to the record label for eventually releasing it Anyway, like I mentioned, at this point, Karen's tired. She's exhausted. But all she wants is to get married and have kids and just have a family and be happy and be loved. That's all she wants. She was constantly lonely. She had a best friend. I forget her name. um, And she would just go and hang out at their house and just be a surrogate mom to their kids because it's all she wanted. And she felt like it was her escape from her crazy life. And she does end up getting married, but there's some caveats. The first is that they got married really, really fast. So she meets Tom Burris in August of 19... Or, sorry. She marries Tom Burris in August of 1980 mm-hmm. after only having just met him in April. Ooh. They got... I don't remember the exact time frame, but they basically met in April, got engaged in May, said they were going to be engaged for a year. And then they were like, just kidding. Our wedding's in August. So they they very quickly get married. Yeah. And all her friends are like, whoa, red flags. We yeah. don't have good feelings about this dude. Um, and But she was like gushing to all her friends. She's like, he's so great. He's so loving. He reminds me of my brother, which is all she wanted in a guy. That uh, don't ask. Yeah. Um, and he he was rich and fancy and nice and was constantly talking about these like boats he owned and fancy cars and um typical so she thought he was he was nice but the day before the rehearsal dinner so two days before the wedding he drops the bombshell that he has had a vasectomy and he cannot have kids which is all she wanted in life okay and so karen freaks out and she's like we are not getting married like that is you should have told me this before now like this is a deal breaker so she calls agnes and says mom we need to cancel the wedding and she says fuck no you're not people are already on the way i've spent a small fortune for this you can get married you can figure it out oh god and so they get married her mom guilt trips her into having it and they did spend a small fortune on the wedding they spent twenty five thousand dollars that's a lot on the reception um, and then I don't know how soon afterwards, I think it was on their honeymoon. Karen found out he also had no money and was in severe debt because he kept signing leases for things and not paying on them. Oh God, no. Yeah. You can't listen to your mom. No. Like she could have gotten out of that. Yeah. So the marriage was over before it even started. Yeah. From the vasectomy thing. But he, they stayed married for a while. Um, just to like let the tabloids burn down and stuff it's really shitty getting married when you're a celebrity yeah but she was so stressed and so unhappy that she dropped down to 97 pounds <gasps> oh that's bad um so she done she eventually files for divorce um she's in the process of divorcing when she died she never like legally finished the divorce but we don't like tom yeah tom expedited her eating disorder the stress that yeah. he put onto her so she decides you know i need a distraction from my terrible marriage let's record a new album with richard because he's finally 
back on track and out of mm-hmm. rehab and we're ready to continue our career. It's going to be great. In June of 1981, the Carpenters released what would be their final LP called Made in America. And things kind of like calm down for a little bit. They take a, another kind of a break because in January of 1982, Karen decides to finally seek therapy for eating disorder, which sounds good, but does not end well. So she has this therapist and when she comes to LA to work on recording of this next album that she's working with Richard, Richard starts talking to her about it and is like, you do not look like you're doing good. Like you're really skinny. You're really frail. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think your therapist is helping you. You need to go get checked into an inpatient center. And she's like, no, I'm fine. This is working. It's fine. Her therapist is terrible. I don't know how this man has a license. So first off, he's charging her $100 a day to come to one hour sessions five days a week. Ooh. Um, which, I mean, she can afford because she's rich, but whatever. Yeah. That's just, that's a lot of sessions. That's a lot of and money. And this program is supposed to last for three years. So mm-hmm. something about that just immediately yeah. should be a red flag. Like I said, it's not an inpatient center, which is the most beneficial for eating disorders usually because they can watch you 24 seven. Right. So what she would do is she would go to her therapy appointments, say, Oh yeah, I'm doing great. And then go home and just do all the things she'd been doing this whole time. Yeah. She wasn't gaining any weight. She wasn't eating any food. Um, she could do, she could very easily lie to him and like cover her tracks. And he also just did weird shit, like call her mom and try to force her to say, I love you over the phone because he thought that would solve all her problems. No, not that point. Um, and so, meanwhile, Karen thinks everything's working great. She's like, you know, my therapist keeps telling me the three-year program, but I'm going to graduate in a couple months and I can come home. And Weird. She ends up getting checked into the hospital and having to be fed through an IV because she's not eating. Um, and it's just, she eventually just said she's done. She's going to graduate herself. And so she leaves and goes back to L.A. And when she leaves New York, she only weighs 87 pounds. Oh, she's, my God nothing that september i guess she's she's still in contact with her therapist and she calls from la to just say her heart was beating funny and she felt dizzy and confused and he was like "Eh, you should go probably go to the hospital um she ended up gaining 30 pounds in the hospital oh sorry that was while she was in still still in new york before she quit going to him she checked into a hospital in new york and gained 30 pounds in eight weeks and she was all excited she was like you know i'm i'm recovering like, this yeah. is good for me. Um, she thought she was cured. So on she goes home to visit her parents. And on the morning of February 4th, 1983, they found her non-responsive on the floor. They called an ambulance and she was pronounced dead at the hospital <sighs> from a heart failure caused by her anorexia. How and old she, was she? She was just 32 years old. Oh God! And her death shook the world. Like the the hospital staff, they didn't recognize her because she was so skinny. Like she's in a hospital in LA. Like people knew who she was, but towards the end of her life, people who had known her for years would see her on the street and not even recognize her. And she'd be really offended by that because she's like, "Why don't these people who I've worked with for years recognize me?" But she was just skin and bones. Yeah. She didn't look like herself. And so the the staff, when they heard that, um. It was Harold Carpenter coming in. They thought it was Harold that had had the heart attack because he had a history of heart disease. And when they found out it was Karen, like the staff just lost it Um, and the world lost it. So when they announced her death, uh, the Orange County Register reported 
It's hardly surprising when one of Rock's hard livers dies at an early age. The passing of Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix is perhaps an understandable and a macabre fashion. It's as though the nature of their gut-level music made death more of an occupational hazard than anything. Yeah. But the passing of Karen Carpenter at age 32 has come to a, come at a complete shock. No one knew she was sick. The public didn't know at all. I mean, other than just seeing yeah. her get smaller and smaller in photos. Um, understandably, this devastated Richard. It's his sister. It's his career partner. Um, and so really soon after her death like four weeks after her death he just locks himself up in the the producing booth and finishes producing their final album he pulls like unreleased material a Mm. bunch of outtakes um and releases an album called voice of the heart and a lot of people were like isn't this really soon to be back in the studio and he said that's the only thing that got me through this time like i had to be feeling like I was close to her and I tried to put myself in the fan shoes and ask what they would want. And I felt like this was it. In 2019, the New York times magazine listed the carpenters both together and separately. So they're on there three times among the hundreds of artists whose material was destroyed in that 2008 universal fire. I hate that. Uh, So it's actually really good that Richard made that album because at least some of the, the outtakes and stuff survived. Yeah. So while their their career was at its height, they actually had a very mixed public reception because they didn't fit in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, they had a very clean cut look, unlike most groups at the time. We're getting into you know shaggy psychedelic Beatles right. and Janice and Jimmy, and even like the pop groups at the time are not as clean cut as they are. Yeah, and they got some very interesting interview questions because people would just assume, Oh, there are these white conservative kids and they'd be like, no, we don't support the Vietnam war. And they're like, what? (laughs) Mind blown. (laughs) And so they, they didn't really know how to handle them because they looked all nice and shiny. Yeah. But they'd say, you know, we're not as squeaky clean as we look. I mean, obviously one had a drug addiction. Right. Um, and the press didn't really know how to handle them. And so they often just got like, shuffled around to different reviewers and kind of forgotten about but when they did get reviewed they would be reviewed by the rock critics because they felt like they were the most qualified to review them i guess yeah and my favorite quote was a journalist uh rob horberger who said they were not rock they were not jazz they were not country they were not classical but they had facets of all that in their music and when you put all those facets together you get this really amazing pop gem as far as their legacy and influence, they had six multi-platinum albums, two additional platinum albums, six gold albums, 15 number one hits on the contemporary charts, wow. three number ones, 12 top 10 hits, 19 top 40 hits in the top 100, and over a period that was really just a little bit more than a decade. Who knows yeah. what they would have done if, if they going. had gotten to keep going. Um but they're one of the few artists of their caliber and rank who are not in the Rock Hall of Fame. Interesting. And we know that the Rock Hall of Fame is very biased and only picks artists that they want. Yeah. Um, and But people are kind of upset that they were never let in because they they paved the way to rock ballads and some of these cross-genre stuff yeah. that 
really wouldn't exist and Richard Carpenter hadn't been out there just stealing everybody's songs. Right. Music analyst Mike Kerb says their body of work was really good pop music with an edge. It was very fresh pop rock that was perfectly produced, always pronounced with just enough edge. It never sounded dated. It just sounded fresh. And they've they've had biopics, um, mm-hmm. not to the level of some other artists we've talked about, um, and nothing recently. So it'd be a really good opportunity for someone who wants to make a biopic. Yeah. Um, but they, I think they it'd live be perfect on. biopic. It would be a material. great biopic. Man, I literally hold that mother responsible. Oh yeah, it's a hundred percent her fault. It's a hundred percent, and I hope she l- went to her grave with it. Yeah. I'll be, I know it's mean, but that's how I feel. I, I ho- do yeah. not treat your kids like that. Yep. It is a hundred percent Agnes's fault. Yep. I mean, it's, it's slightly the press's fault, but I think if it had just been the press, it would have been easier. There's a lot of things you can get through if you have good yeah, friends if you're, and family It just good friends in general. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you can't get that One with family, but her closest friends is actually Olivia Newton John who has similar problems so yeah she had some issues with not a yeah. great friend to bounce your eating disorder off of but yeah her she really didn't she just wanted someone to love her and yeah. the one guy she thought was gonna do it turned out to be a piece of shit so yeah oh god that's sad it's a like i said it's a really sad story of karen yeah. carpenter but her voice is beautiful their songs yeah. are beautiful carpenter christmas man nothing like it Thank you for listening. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you got something nice to say, write it down in our review. We want to read it. Special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff. You can visit our brand new shiny website at SheWillRockYou.com. It has all of our personal social media things. This is a little rough because my first time doing this. Um, show no- Just go. Just go look at it. It's awesome. Uh, other than that, don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. And don't have a mother like Agnes. Yeah, don't be a mother like Agnes. Don't be a mother like Agnes. Fuck Agnes. I say this and Agnes is my mom's middle name. <laughs> but she was a good mom. <laughs>